Well, we're continuing our series of women in the Bible. We're going to look at a child this day. And uh, most of you know the story of Naaman the leper and how he got healed. We're not going to read the whole story. We're going to just focus on this little girl, verses 1 through 5 of 2 Kings chapter 5. Hear the word of God. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who was from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Father God, I thank you for the stories that you have strewn through the scriptures, stories that quicken to our hearts uh, the principles of your word in a very uh, remarkable way. And I pray that you would enable me to faithfully communicate this story and the lessons that you intend for us in it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so far in our Women of Faith series, we've looked at Rahab, a woman who was rescued from the gutter. And then we looked at Eve, the only perfect woman who has blown it. <laughs> we've all blown it, right? But the only perfect woman who has blown it. And then we looked at the godly sisters, Martha and Mary. And today I want to look at a nameless slave girl who had been taken captive to Syria, and I believe that this girl exhibited a faith that all of us can aspire to. The sermon is not just for the girls in our midst, it is really intended for all of us to learn from. Though nameless and unknown and unloved, God knew her, God loved her, and God made sure that we would cherish this girl, and I do hope that you do cherish this girl after we have looked at her life. Uh, it can be very difficult to feel insignificant and unable to con uh, contribute much to God's kingdom. We want our lives to count, and I think God made us to be that way. And if you are an invalid in a bed and uh, you can't get out and about, you may feel that your options are extremely limited. If you are trapped in a bad marriage, you may feel like your productivity is way, way down and limited. Uh, if you are a little child, you may feel like nobody pays any attention to me. My siblings get all of the attention. Nobody pays attention. If you're an employee at a big corporation, you may feel like you're a tiny, insignificant cog in a huge machine. I think most of us wonder, what difference can we make? Our church might wonder, what difference can our church make in the big uh, scheme of things? But I can guarantee you that every one of you is significant in God's sight. You would not have been created if you were not significant and if God did not have a plan for your lives. Out in Ethiopia, my parents knew a girl who had become a Christian, and she felt very insignificant. Uh, you got to understand, in Ethiopia, uh, the, the women were not treated very well, and the uh, little girls were treated 
uh, even more poorly, and she wanted to witness, but she wondered who in the world's going to listen to a little girl's testimony in my village. She was the only Christian there at that time. She wanted desperately for her relatives and for other villagers to come to a saving knowledge of the Lord. And so she had been praying very, very diligently that God would give her the ability to change the lives of some. Well, one day she was walking home, and it was getting uh, late at night, so she was kind of in a hurry, and it was raining, and she slipped in the mud, fell backward, knocked her head on a stone, and knocked herself unconscious. When she came back to consciousness, there was a leopard that was lying on her body with its uh, face breathing right into her nose. She didn't freak out like you and I probably <laughs> would freak out and start screaming. Uh, she just quietly prayed to the Lord and said, Lord, um, if you want me to go he uh, to heaven right now, I'm ready to go. I, I know that I am saved. And if you want this leopard to eat me, I'm okay with that. But please, I want my relatives to come to a saving knowledge of you. You've put on my heart this burden for my village. Would you please rescue me from this leopard? Well, the leopard immediately got up, walked a little ways away, looked back at her for a while, then walked off a little bit further, looked back at her, and then walked off into the forest. Well, you can bet that she was rejoicing in the Lord and God's provision. Number one, she probably would have gotten some hypothermia as long as she had been there because it was obvious that leopard had been on her a long time. Its tail had been switching back and forth, had rubbed her feet uh, quite raw, but she realized, you know what, the Lord kept me warm with this leopard, and uh, the Lord is more powerful than this leopard, and the Lord had renewed in her a desire to see her relatives come to a saving knowledge of the Lord. So when she got back to the village, she told them what had happened. And who's going to believe a little girl's story like this? But she said, just smell my clothing. The leopard, God made the leopard pee all over her. <laughs> and uh, they knew what that leopard pee smelled like. And so they said, there is no denying this story. And uh, so many people actually became Christians as a result of her, as a result of her testimony. She thought, all I am is a little girl. But in God's plan, little girls have a place in his unfolding uh, providence. And later on, she began to realize even the boring parts of my life have a significance for God, even the washing of dishes and all of those types of things. Well, this was certainly true of this girl in 2 Kings chapter 5. As a result of her statement of faith, and we'll see, it is a remarkable statement of faith that escaped her lips, Naaman became a true believer, and through Naaman's influence, King Ben-Hadad acknowledged God to be the true God of all the earth. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that he was a genuine uh, believer, but he at least respected biblical religion, and he stopped attacking Israel. And as a result of this girl's influence, uh, Elisha had the ability to freely travel through uh, the land of Syria and there was a temporary freedom from wars for Israel for a while. But what a privilege it would have been to her to know that as a result of one little statement from her mouth, there were going to be people in heaven that she would uh, uh, ha uh, have fellowship with throughout all of eternity. And so today, I want to look not so much at the missions impact that this girl had, even though I've preached on that before, I want to look at the impact that God had on her. He was framing her through this experience 
uh, to be more and more conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a story of a Jewish maid being made by the Lord and for the Lord in a foreign land. Have you ever wondered what aspirations this little girl may have had when she was growing up? Uh, if she's like most little girls in Israel, she probably had aspirations to get married to some handsome dude and to get a cottage, you know, maybe by the seaside and to be able to invite people over and have hospitality in her home and to be able to serve the Lord uh, with her children and things like that. But God had a totally different plan uh, for her. And his plan for her still enabled her to nameless as she was, to have a life that counted. And it counted not because she was successful in the eyes of the world. It counted first and foremost because God was preparing her heart. And um, it's not an issue of where your residence might be. Uh, it's an issue of what God is doing in us and through us and whether our lives are available uh, to him uh, as a servant. So we're going to take a look at 10 mission attitudes that this girl had. First, you must be concerned about the needs of others. Uh, this is a big one. This is a hard one. Paul says, let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. 1 Corinthians 10, 24. That takes grace. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. This maid could very easily have felt so sorry for herself and been so wrapped up in self-pity and her needs and her hurts that she would totally miss the hurts and the needs of other people that were around her. Consider her difficulties. Verse 2 says, The Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back a captive young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress. Now the implication is that not a whole lot of time had gone by. And uh, I want you children to just imagine that you have been kidnapped. It's kind of a thing that makes me cringe when I think of it. By the way, just as a side note, some of you kids play outside with no adult supervision. I highly, highly, highly recommend you not do that. There is a lot of kidnapping that goes on out there, and I recommend you parents know where your kids are at any given moment. But anyway, that's a side issue. Kids, just, just imagine that you were kidnapped, and uh, your parents uh, don't know where you're at. You're worrying about them. They're worrying about you. And uh, you've just been through a harrowing experience, like this little girl who faced uh, warfare and was dragged away from her parents crying and terrified, and you're now in a foreign land. You're emotionally exhausted. You feel lonely. You're being forced to work for your captors. What would you feel like if you found out that the person who had captured you now had leprosy? You think you would care? <laughs> You'd probably wish the same leprosy upon, you know, her wife and her whole family it's like, Lord, thank you for judging uh, this person. Uh, and, and there's an appropriateness to God's judgments in other people's lives. But this is, really, this is really an odd thing that she has compassion for the people who have caused her all of this misery. This was much like Paul's deep concern for his persecutors in Romans 9, where he wished, and he said, I'm not lying. 
I wish I could be accursed for the sake of my brethren, the Jews, who were his persecutors, who hated him, but God had given him such a supernatural burden for others, he could not get away from preaching to them and sending the message to them. So it's remarkable that she even notices her master's misery, let alone cares about it, and yet she says, if only my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. I think it would be a good thing for all of us to pray for that kind of concern and burden for the lost, a concern that gives evidence that God's grace really is at work in our hearts. We need to pray to God that we would not be so wrapped up in ourselves and that God would purge us of wallowing in self-pity. If you think you have a right to self-pity, I would like you to compare your miserable situation of today with her miserable situation. I don't think there really is a comparison, okay? And if you begin to develop the attitude of putting other people's needs ahead of your own and asking God, Lord, why have you put me in this circumstance and how can I minister in a way that is pleasing to you? God will make you your life count no matter where you are if you have that attitude. Interestingly, in the process, you will be rescued from the shackles of bitterness and self-pity, and we'll look at that in a bit. Second principle is that you must not be ashamed of God. When she said, if only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, she was basically saying, you know, the prophets of this country stink. Uh, they can't do a thing. They can't heal Naaman. Your God can't heal Naaman. Your God's a fake God. If only you were with the true God and with his prophets in Samaria, something could be done. So it, it was really a bold contrast between the impotence of Syria's gods who could not heal Naaman and the power of Jehovah. Now it's true she used tact and phrased it very de delicately, and yet it showed a willingness to take some risks in order to honor God. She was not ashamed of God, and in our woke, cancel culture, there is huge, huge pressure to be ashamed of God and of His Word. So I want you to ask yourselves, am I ashamed of God, of His Word, of His Gospel in any of the actions that I have taken in the past few weeks? Christians, I think, many times learn to be ashamed about God from other Christians, because I think the most natural thing when we first come to Christ is to want to share Christ with everybody. We're so excited about what God has done to us. I remember um, one family telling me about their children having absolutely no shame at all about talking about God and the gospel in the grocery store and wherever they, uh, wherever they go to. And I will have to confess that early on in my marriage, I cringed sometimes at the honest things that my kids would tell our neighbors next door, things like, you shouldn't worship Mary, that is idolatry, that is an abomination, <laughs> uh, or salvation is by grace alone, you're going straight to hell if you do not repent. Uh, now, they could have been more tactful, I will grant you that, but why is it that we tend to cringe at what our kids say that is really true things that they say? And I think because it is because there is a, an element of shame about God in us. And I would say we need to learn boldness from our little children. Kids might have to learn some tact from us, and I will have to say some of you kids could be a little bit more tactful and the, the way you say things, but I think we need to learn boldness from our children. 
My friend told me about how his daughter often sings, Jesus loves me, this I know, or amazing grace in public spaces. And some of you have children who do exactly the same. And here's my question to you. What is your reaction? It is, no, 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 we need to be quiet. We shouldn't be doing this in a public space. And if you do say that, there might be some good reasons for saying, but, but, but is it because you are ashamed in our woke culture to name the name of Christ where the name of Christ is being hated? I really think we need to examine ourselves. Why are we embarrassed? We need to learn from our kids rather than teaching our kids to be ashamed. Our Lord said, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Can you see how it would be very, very easy for this little maid to be a bit embarrassed to say what she said? I think this shows God was working in her heart. He kept her from being ashamed of God. She's an encouragement to me. The third principle is that we must be convinced that God has the answers to this world's needs. God providentially placed a need in Naaman's life, and the girl encouraged him to look to the Lord for the solution. And I think you can do that as well. Uh, when you have sick neighbors, don't just say, oh, I'm sorry that you're feeling sick. Offer to pray for them. Who in the world is going to turn you down if you're willing to pray that the Lord would heal them or sustain them or provide for them? There are many opportunities around us that I think we miss out on when we're failing to see that the Lord is the answer to all of the world's needs and problems. Now, her attempt to get Naaman to look to God almost got derailed in verses 5 through 7. It says, So the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he's looking to the state rather than to the Lord God for the solution. And unfortunately, that is what most evangelicals are doing today. They don't look to the true Messiah for their health needs or for their financial needs. They look to the federal government to be the Messiah in almost everything. Or they look to the doctor to rescue them. I really, really appreciate my uh, father-in-law. He was a physician. And prominently displayed in his doctor's office was a sign that said, I treat, God heals. I love that sign. Uh, he was saying, yes, I'm used as a tool in God's hand, but he wanted all of his patients to look to the Lord ultimately in the use of his medicine. It was a great little uh, plaque. It was actually a stitched plaque, I believe. Continuing on, so he departed and took with him 10 talents of silver 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 changes of clothing. He was hoping to buy himself out of his predicament. And there are many ways in which we look to our own resources to help. Well, God in this story is basically going to bring Naaman to a place where he realizes there's nothing I can do. Absolutely nothing that I can do. Uh, he would be cast upon the Lord alone. Verse 6 goes on. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. Now both the king and Naaman were looking to the power of man for healing, but verse 7 indicates the king should have had faith, but he lacked the faith of this little maid. He was not a man of faith, starting at verse 7. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? 
Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. So it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes that he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please, let him come to me, and he shall know that there was a prophet in Israel. Now, God tailor-makes our situation so that we can take advantage of missions, opportunities in some fashion. Every one of us can. Now, bear in mind, God is not going to necessarily bring a Naaman into your life, but he may have brought into your life a person who is presently grieving over an abortion that she or he has caused his wife to have uh, in, in the past year. Or he may have brought into your life a person whose marriage is falling apart or a person who has alcohol problem, or a person who is a compulsive gambler, or a person who is lonely. And even if you cannot meet that need yourself, you may know a person who can meet that particular need just as surely as Elisha met Naaman's need. Now, let me illustrate how this can work. I had a friend um, who, before he was a Christian, was going through financial uh, problems, major financial problems in his investments and other things, and I don't know who gave him the book, but somebody said, you need to read this book by Gary North, Introduction to Biblical Economics. Now, you may not think that economics has anything whatsoever to do with the gospel, but God had been preparing this man with a felt need, and when he saw that this book thoroughly, perfectly was answering the economic questions that he was asking, he was then motivated to begin asking questions about his soul and his relationship to God. And that book by Gary North led him to Christ. An economics book led him to Christ. Hallelujah. <laughs> uh, I think God is so creative. Well, here's what we can do in the same way. Uh, we can use books. We can use uh, uh, things on the web. There's many ways in which we can have people go to the prophet in Samaria. Pastor Michael Ware this past week was telling me that his uh, marriage counseling uh, has been used to lead people to a saving knowledge of the Lord. So they got a messed up life. As he's able to resolve problems there through the scriptures, it gives a faith that God is indeed relevant to all that we do, and it opens them up uh, to the, the gospel. And so there have been many people who have been saved through marriage books, uh, through uh, books on education and in other areas. So how can you send a Naaman to the prophet in Samaria? Well, give him or lend to him a book and say, I would love to discuss this book with you in a week or two. I highly recommend, as I have many times before, that every member of this church begin to develop a lending library. Not just a library where books sit there unused for year after year. A lending library of very strategic books. And make sure that these books are sending these people to the prophet in Samaria. In other words, to the prophetic word of God. Don't send them to the psychologist. Don't send them to the king. Don't send them to some secular economist. Send them to the prophet in Samaria. In other words, to the Bible. And there are a lot of biblical books on marriage, economics, politics, education, welfare, you name it. Even mathematics can lead people to the prophetic word. <laughs> I see a amen, hallelujah in the back. Um, and I hope to show on the Biblical Blueprints website how Christians can have the foundations of math in the Bible. It'll be a witness to the woke mathematicians who are skeptical about even the truth of math. 
And so you can send people to the prophet in Samaria by sending them to a website or two, or inviting them to a gospel music concert, or a seminar that meets their needs, or a Christian movie, or a church service, or a Bible study. There are so many ways in which we can be like this little maid in sending people to the prophet in Samaria. Um, but here's the point of this major point here. If you are not convinced that God is the solution to this world's problems, you're not going to see missions opportunities. Uh, you'll be blind to them even though they're staring you in the face. And so this point is you must be convinced God has the answers to all of this world's problems. The fourth principle is that your life of service must match your words of service. And this is such an important principle. You've got to have a lifestyle that matches your words. So if you give your neighbor a book on marriage, you know, they're going through marriage problems and say, oh, you've got to read this book. Here's a book. And yet your life, your marriage is an absolute mess. You've not been putting into, it's not going to be very good advertising, right? Uh, and so you want to make sure that you yourself are living out the principles of the books that, that you, you, you are recommending. And we're not talking about being perfect. Nobody's perfect in their marriage. You could be totally honest. Oh, yeah, I still occasionally blow it, but here's the things that I do. You know, I repent of this sin, and here's the steps that I take of moving forward. And so when they see you're a real person like they are, you've gone through the same problems that they have, and yet God is giving you the victory, and your marriage is becoming tighter and tighter as a result of following God's principles. It gives those other people hope, and it may lead them uh, to uh, the Lord as well. <clears throat> now, we, we're not told much about this um, maid, um, you know, but I think there's a lot we can read between the lines. For example, if she were a liar, it's unlikely that her mistress would have taken these words seriously, just would have shrugged them off. If she tried to run away, was irresponsible, it's doubtful that they would have trusted her. If she were lazy, her mistress might have thought she just wants less work. If she were resentful and angry, her mistress might have thought she's just trying to get even. She's playing a cruel joke on us. After all, had any leper up to this time been healed? Maybe it had to happen, but we're not told in the Scripture. Uh, and since she was there against her will, without having won the respect of her mistress, her testimony concerning Elisha would have been so much hot air. And so uh, a good lifestyle without testimony does not save. A testimony without the lifestyle to back it up is empty. So I think this is another way in which this girl is a, 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 an incredible testimony to us. Another condition we must have is a burden for the lost. Uh, this does not come naturally. The Hebrew in verse 3 says, uh, if only, uh, of, of the word if only, is achale, achale. Okay, it's an interjection that always, always shows a burdened heart. It's usually translated, oh, that with an exclamation mark at the end of the sentence. So here's how you could translate it. Oh, that my master was with the prophet. There needs to be more oh in the gospel, more burden in, in the gospel, more compassion. And uh, when we have a, a yearning to win the lost, the opportunities for witness will become apparent more frequently what happens is a burden really clears our eyesight and makes us look for opportunities. So ask God to give this burden. And um, by the way, there is an evangelism team that is willing to help you with all of these things that we're talking about today. The sixth principle is that you must not give in to resentment. 
Well, this too is hard. Maybe it's even impossible. It requires grace. Just imagine that you were captured from your home city. You were taken to Cuba under former Fidel Castro's reign, and you were brought into his home, and uh, you're working for Fidel Castro's uh, wife, and uh, she tells you to sweep the porch and clean the laundry and fix her hair and now cook my dinner and wash my feet and I change my baby's diapers and quit that crying for your parents. If you don't quit crying, I'll give you something to cry about. She doesn't even let you grieve. And all day long, it's just work, work, work. And suddenly you find out that Fidel Castro has leprosy. Mrs. Castro is in tears. And what are you thinking to yourself? Just like we said earlier, you're maybe going to be thinking good, and, uh, and I hope she dies. I hope he dies. Uh, I, I don't think it's natural for this girl to say, oh, that my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. So uh, it would be so easy to give in to resentment and bitterness. And when you have resentment and bitterness, I guarantee you it kills your passion for the lost. It takes away any desire to pray for others. Bitterness has destroyed the effectiveness of so many people. Scripture calls us to forgive, trust God, thank God, and to implement Romans 12, 9 through 21, which gives a long list of conquering actions of love, where instead of being overcome by evil, we're overcoming evil with good. I put a picture into your outlines of a little girl's feet chained with a chain, ball and chain, and uh, that's what resentment does to you. And you might think, you know, stop it, Pastor Kaiser. I have a right to be bitter. Just look at all, and they, they'll tell you your life, all of the things I'm, I'm bitter about. And, and my response is to you is, is what you're saying is, look, Pastor Kaiser, stop it. I have a right to be chained down with this ball and chain. That's basically what you're saying, when you will not relinquish uh, your bitterness and your resentment. I want this ball and chain. And then my response to you is, well, then quit complaining to me about how miserable you feel. If you want to get past your misery, you've got to cut this out of your life. Seventh principle, don't offer excuses as to why you can't be involved in serving others. Now, if we're looking for excuses as to why we don't need to be a witness we can come up with all kinds of excuses. I can. It's very easy because I'm shy. <laughs> I don't like to do that kind of thing. Uh, we can come up with excuses. And if anybody could have been absolved from having to witness, I would think it would have been this little girl because if you study the Syrian culture, little girls were meant to be seen and not heard. It was a very difficult culture for little girls to live in. The text says that she was young, and youngsters don't have to witness, do they? And yet scripture says that children can be missionaries to those that they come in contact with. By the way, you kids, when you've got a visitor that comes into this um, assembly, you are reflecting well or you're reflecting poorly upon Christ and your, your testimony by how you talk to those visitors. Do they hear words coming out of your mouth that really are the opposite of what Christ says should be coming out of our mouth? Do they hear gossip and complaint and tearing down of other people? Or do they hear forgiveness and love and joy in the Holy Spirit? We need to examine our hearts. What kind of a witness are we being 
to even people who come into this assembly. Your speech is a good witness or a terrible witness. Now, she was a captive. You could say, oh, that's the perfect excuse. There's nothing she can do. She's just a captive. I'm a victim of my circumstances. Have you ever felt like you were a captive to your circumstances? If only I was not born in this family. <laughs> or whatever the other excuse might be. Or I would uh, be a much better witness if I had more money or a larger dining room in which to entertain, or a better personality, or the gift of gab. But I doubt God would expect much from me given my terrible circumstances. I'm a captive. I'm a victim of circumstances. Right? We, we tend to think that way sometimes. When the Christian realizes that every circumstance is tailor-made by God for our good, we realize we are not a captive. It is our circumstances that are captive to us and to God's purposes for us. And when we begin to view life like that, we begin to see opportunities. For example, Paul and Silas were cast into jail, and I suspect their circumstances in jail is a whole lot worse than any circumstances than any one of you are facing right now. Pretty bad circumstances that they were in. But Paul and Silas, they saw this as a fabulous opportunity. Wow, I would never have had an opportunity otherwise to witness to these guards. They're a captive audience. They're chained to me. They cannot get away from me, you know? So they're witnessing to the fellow prisoners. They're witnessing to the, fellow gu uh, to the guards, and they're winning them to Christ. They didn't see themselves as captives of Rome. In fact, it's very interesting how many times Paul says, not that he's a captive of Rome, but that he's a prisoner of Christ. A prisoner of Christ. Christ has put me in this bad situation. This is what you need to say. Christ has put me into this bad family or this bad situation or this bad financial circumstance so that I can glorify him. And we've got a choice. Be miserable or I choose to glorify him. This maid was a prisoner of Christ. Really, that's what it amounts to. She was a prisoner of Christ. She knew that God was sovereign. Of all of the times in Israel's history to be born, God chose her to be born when the Syrians were in the ascendancy. God had her probably come out of hiding at just the wrong time where they saw her, snatched her, and took her off. And he kept her from being sold until Naaman's wife could see her in the, in the, in the slave market and say, I want that girl to be... Uh, there And God kept leprosy from afflicting Naaman until just the perfect time. See, she saw herself as part of God's sovereign tapestry. And I'm convinced that only a supreme confidence in God could cause her to have such an attitude of contentment to her master and to her circumstances. So here's another question I want you to ask yourself. Do I have contentment with the circumstances God has given to me? And if not, why not? Doesn't mean we have to be passive. If we can change our circumstances, by all means do so. But Paul said, whether with much or with little, I have learned in every circumstance to be content. Do we have contentment or do we, are we just full of excuse making on why we can't serve God the way he calls us to do? Seek contentment for the Lord Jesus Christ. The eighth principle is that we must develop an eye for opportunities to witness. I've told you about Jim Moss before. He's my hero. Uh, he was a member of our previous church. Uh, he was a retired missionary. And uh, 
he, he was only there for a couple years before he headed back east. But one of the things I appreciated about Jim Moss was that he saw opportunities for witness everywhere. So I wanted to take advantage of this and learn how to see these opportunities. So I asked him, can I tail you? Can I follow you everywhere you go? And he said, sure. Uh, he, he loved to mentor people in evangelism, which is not my gifting at all. But I learned a lot from him. I remember one time we were un unloading um, uh, Jim Schaefer's house, and he was going to another place. And there he, they had hired some crew that we were just helping with, but they were unbelievers. And I think it had to have been within two or three minutes, Jim Moss was sharing the gospel with him. But I heard how it started. It was a sedge from something that person had said that I would never have thought was an opportunity to share the gospel. But it was just a perfectly smooth. Now, some people are more gifted in that than other people are. But I think all of us can learn. And evangelist Michael Elliott is willing for you to follow him around, and so is Bill Crilly and others. We want an evangelism team that will win people to Christ. And I'm so, I'm so thankful we have a team. But take advantage of it. Take advantage of it. Follow these guys around. See how they do things. Uh, stretch yourself. Try to be a witness. You know, Gary North calls uh, some of what was going on here bread and butter evangelism. He called it that because uh, we're, we're answering questions that the pagans already are asking. But we're doing it with the Word of God, and through that, uh, we'll eventually be able to answer the questions that they're not asking, okay? So you, you, you pick up right where they're at, and the Bible relates to everything, right? And so there should be nothing that we say or they say that cannot be an opportunity for the gospel. You know, when you see a beautiful sunset, just say, wow, God has done a beautiful painting in the sky. Just a statement like that may be the bait that they will run with, but... Do, do spend some time with Michael Elliott. The ninth principle of missions is that we must have faith in God's ability to do the impossible. This is another really tough one because we many times think this is just too tough of a situation. We've, we've spent so many years talking to a relative who has a hard heart and is impenetrable to the gospel and we almost feel like giving up on that person. Lepers, up until that point, had never been healed. They were impossible. So what in the world made this girl think that he could be healed? It was just not an obstacle for her. She said, oh, that my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. What made her so audacious to suggest that. Well, the Lord may have prompted her to, to say that. I'm sure he did providentially, but may have even subjectively prompted her to say that. But she had actually witnessed or been told stories about all of the things that Elisha had done in the previous chapters, and she had no doubts whatsoever about the power of God. In chapter 2 of, of this book, in verse 14, Elisha parted the Jordan River and crossed on dry land. So which is harder, to part a river of water or to heal a person of leprosy? Um, in um, chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, he heals the waters of a bad spring. 
In chapter 2, verses 22 through 25, he sicks two female bears on 42 teenage delinquents. Okay, which is harder, to command two female bears to do something or to command microbes to do something? I don't know, but uh, anyway, that would give you confidence. In chapter 3, he shows Israel and Judah how to destroy Moab's armies and does it in a miraculous way. Anybody have a Kleenex? Bring up a Kleenex for me. Got a allergy dripping nose. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Um, in um, chapter 3, he shows Israel and Judah how to destroy Moab's armies, does it in a miraculous way. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, he performs the miracle of the continuing replenishing oil. I mean, that would instill all kinds of confidence, you know? Pouring this little cruise of oil, she keeps filling up vessel after vessel after vessel until she runs out of vessels. I mean, that would inspire confidence in you. In chapter 4, verse 8 and following, you have the raising of the Shumanite's dead son. Which is harder, to heal of leprosy or to raise a dead man from the grave? So she had plenty of evidence to be able to say this, especially if the Lord had given prompting and guidance to her. Uh, he's got a whole bunch of, I won't go through all of the different uh, miracles that he did, you know, uh, getting rid of poison in a food, etc., feeding 100 people with 20 loaves of bread. And so I think this maid had her head screwed on straight. She knew if God willed it, Elisha could heal this man. The last issue that was in place is this girl's life demonstrated submission. Now we've already seen she submitted to God's providence without growing bitter, but she also submitted to the human authorities that God had placed over her. Verse 2 says she served Naaman's wife. Now, let me clarify that she served her mistress, not her mistress's gods. That's a big difference. Not her mistress's gods. All submission must be submission in the Lord, whether we submit to governments, employers, husbands, parents, or elders of a church. Uh, the fact that she still trusts the true God shows to me that there are limits to submission. But all of us are called to submission. And in some ways, I think this is one of the biggest tests of a mission's heart. Are we willing to submit to God when he calls us to say something, when he prompts us to witness? A life that is devoted to the Lord is a life that will count for all of eternity, no matter where you are, no matter how humble your circumstances may be. Submission to God. God calls us to serve him faithfully, and then we just leave the results in his hand. I started this message by asking you, whether you felt like you were insignificant. And uh, significance is not a qualification for being used by God. In fact, many times it's the exact opposite. It's when we realize that we are insignificant. I, I, I see myself like the donkey's jawbone in Samson's hand. I'm just astonished God would use me. So insignificance is not a disqualification. Just think of it this way. One person with God is a majority. One weakling with God is almighty power. It doesn't matter how weak you are. Are you clinging to God? Are you willing to be used by God? Do not bail on your responsibilities because of how insignificant you are. 
Just think of how Samson picked up that donkey's jawbone and killed, what was it, a thousand men with it? If we just see ourselves as available, like that dry stick in Moses' hand, and he parts, was the stick anything? No, it's God who uses that dry stick in Moses' hands, right? You might be the donkey's jawbone. You might be the dry old stick. Don't worry about it. Look to Jesus and be willing to be used by him. And uh, say, yes, Lord, whenever he prompts you to serve him. Father, I thank you for this little maid. What a beautiful testimony she is. And I pray that if there are any here this morning who feel as insignificant as that little maid felt, that you would stir up hope and faith within their chest and give to them a passion to be used by you. Father, we want to be that one with you that is the majority, that one weakling with you that exhibits almighty power. May we glory in our weakness because in our weakness, it's your strength that is glorified and magnified. And so, Father, I pray that you would bless this, your congregation, with mighty things, miracles. Father, there's so many changes that happened in Syria and Israel as a result of this little maid. And there is nothing that is too hard for you. You can change our city. You can change our nation, if it's you so will it. But whether you do or not, Father, we want our lives to count for you. And so help us day by day, moment by moment, to cling to you. In Jesus' name. Amen.